Teachers are so important. Like, they actually are. Care about it and, like, actually try. I believe it is a beautiful piece of art. Welcome along to See Me After Class for 2020. This is a podcast that emanates from a beautiful school in the southern Alps of New Zealand. Now, let's meet the team. And here is Cathy, a parent who aspires to make connections in a community to build a successful future. This is Chris, who aspires to be an agitator who tests the boundaries just to see how the system reacts. And this is Anna, a silent observer who's a go-between between the students and the teachers in a classroom. This is Renee, who aspires to forge a progressive and creative path. And together, we are See Me After Class. Welcome along to episode 52 of See Me After Class. We've been a little bit intermittent over the last few months, but I assure you we're back on our weekly routine now. In order to fulfill that promise, I have an interview here for episode zero of the term. It's the holidays, and I had an opportunity to catch up with Ollie, who's a gender non-binary student, who was gracious enough to give me a couple of hours of their time so that we could go through what the life of a non-binary student is like in our little rural high school and some of our thoughts about how things could be developed for the better. Sometimes we had a bit in common and other times we had quite different experiences. It's a great conversation and I invite you to, after having a listen to it, get in touch with us if you have any observations or points of view. As a small rural school, we definitely have a lot to learn when it comes to working with students in this world of diverse gender and sexuality, and we would love to hear about how other schools and other people are solving some of these dilemmas. Here's the interview. Welcome along, Ollie, and thank you very much for joining us in this podcast. These uh, series that I'm currently doing are very close to my heart, and I really appreciate you putting some time aside to talk to us about your experience as a student in the school. I definitely am focusing on matters that are of interest to people of diverse gender identities and sexualities in the school. And that's one of the reasons yeah. I've spoken to you. So yeah. I was wondering if I could ask you a few questions that are about the, the the starting point for you when it comes to, I think you call it your gender journey in relation to yes. the school and, and how how it all went and what and what the important milestones might have been for you. We we get hung up on words and things. So yeah, gender journey um, for me as a non-binary person. Is, is fitting because it, it's, it's quite helpful but also useless at the same time for communicating ideas. Um, so I think in terms of school, it's been quite instrumental actually uh, with uh, social transitioning and things. And I've had positive and negative experiences with that, with some particular things being like the ability to be in Mufti and not in uniform, uh, to have the opportunity to explore presentation um, in a school environment is really helpful as opposed to being stuck in a uniform, which doesn't (laughs) reflect an identity that um, is very congruent with myself. So tell us a bit about how that went for you. You started school, I understand, in year 10 when there was a uniform. And was that fine? Yeah, well, I, I moved here from Auckland um, and previously it had a, 
a binary boys and girls uniform um, wearing the boys one. And so it, it initially it's, it, it seemed sort of just a given, like, oh, right, yes, well, I commonly understand myself that everyone's told me that I'm a boy, therefore I wear the boys' uniform. Little did I know there was more to the story. But then when I had begun to sort of realise, oh, right, there is more to what I'm experiencing here and this, this social role that I've been gifted by society is not, um, doesn't fit right. Um, the idea of having to put on a, a, a piece of uniform or a piece of clothing that directly signifies a strong social role of um, being a boy or being a, a young man or whatever became quite uncomfortable. Um, and it's extremely visible. Like you can see it walking through a school that has a uniform like that, visually segregating all the students into two clear visible groups. Oh, I can see your assumed genitalia and yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. So then coming out of that, being in Mufti, um, is really helpful because the rules are fairly relaxed and I haven't actually been called out on anything, which has been also interesting because uh, I know that lots of my female identified friends um, do get called out for the things they wear. So there's an aspect of that. Um, do you find anyway. that there is an inconsistency in that? Do you think that uh, they get called out for things that you also wear that they're not uh, are free to do so? Yeah, I think in terms of makeup, um, right. I am no stranger to have, having a little bit of fun with that. Um, not really caring too much if, if I put something on that's quite visible or quite bold. Um, and I know that I have friends who have been told to remove something from their face that they've put on, like a, a bold lipstick or a too much of something. And I haven't had that, which I think might be a testament to either people being afraid of coming across as transphobic or not accepting of my identity or just not even knowing how to approach it. Like, oh, do I approach it as a, as a boy in makeup or do I, I treat the, the same as the girls? Like, what, whoa, what's happening here? I don't know how to deal with this. How interesting. In a sense, there's a possibility that if we interrogated this in the school, we could learn a lot from how people respond to your choice to wear makeup and apply that same set of rulings to the females or the people who identify as female. And uh, in a sense, it exposes the prejudices that we have against women who choose to wear makeup, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yes. Although at the same time, I think you would get some uh, a variety of different responses if you tried to survey the school in terms of who's allowed to wear extreme makeup at school. Um, is it me or is it a, a biological female? Um, yes. And and it. also, do you do do you think that it could be actually a sign of progress if you were criticised for wearing too much makeup? <laughs> potentially, potentially, yes, a sign of uh, some kind of social developments going on. <laughs> the sort of the sort of incorporation of um, non-binary gender identity into the conservative world, you know. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. 
So when you mentioned, and, and this is genuinely interesting to me, but possibly also to a number of people listening, when you mentioned mm. the uniform that you were uh, offered or chose for yourself when you entered the school as being a, a yeah. uniform for boys, and you yes. talked about the, the discomfort of that, is there mm. any way you can put words to that discomfort? Is there, is there a way of, that you could explain it for people who maybe don't, don't have an insight into that? Yeah. It is funny because, you know, I I could never use words to de- particularly describe an experience. Like if I asked a, a cisgender person, what does it what does it mean to you to be a man or be a woman? It it um I have asked people that before and they're like, oh I've never actually had to question that. Mm. Um but if I were to try and sort of encapsulate the incongruency um that I experience in those sort of situations, it's it's just a little bit like you can sit, like if you're standing in a mirror and you look at yourself um, and it's just that incongruency of not quite recognizing that as true yeah. and not quite recognizing that it's the same thing as what you're experiencing. Although when I say that, I, I, I don't want to go too far into the, the way that lots of people try and talk about um, trans people in general, um, is born in the wrong body, um, one gender up in, in your brain and your body being different to that, and you, then you hate yourself and you hate everything and everything's incongruent and you have a poor mental state, extreme gender dysphoria, and that's what makes someone trans. And I think it's sort of unfortunate to define a group of people by the things we hate about ourselves when it, the conversation should sort of be about the positive things about being trans and the, the conversations that we have. Like I, I do and did when I was wearing that boy's uniform have a lot of discomfort, particularly around things like, I don't know, leg hair or just the way it looks and also being socially grouped with boys as a result um, of wearing that uniform. So I, I couldn't necessarily put words or it, a strong metaphor to communicate that. Could I talk about my experience as a gay person yeah, if I'm related to as someone who's heterosexual and then just mm. see if we can compare those experiences and see if there's yeah. any correlation? Like, Because, again, I don't think anyone asks me what it feels like if someone addresses me as heterosexual when I'm actually gay. I don't think I've actually ever been asked <laughs> yeah. that question, but, but I do have that experience quite often. And yeah. the sort of ways that you might find that people miscalculating your sexuality might be if they ask about your wife mm. or in previous years before this was possible, even asking about children. But the, yes. the, the interesting thing for me is that I do experience that as a great discomfort. And I think mm. it happens on two levels, but it's a similar thing. And that's just to do with being fraudulent. I don't actually yeah. like misrepresenting myself or feeling as if I'm being seen as something I'm not. And so I feel like that feels quite similar to what you're describing. It's not actually mm. necessarily an internal issue. Like I don't have any challenge seeing myself as gay, but I do have trouble being seen by others as not gay. And it does lead me to yes. feel as as if I'm in a very uncomfortable, almost deceitful situation in that connection. And I mm. feel like I therefore have to somehow correct that, usually just by coming out to the person I'm speaking to. Some of the similarities might be in where the discomfort comes from, but I'm also thinking some of the differences are if you are 
gender non-binary or trans, then you can often use things like clothing or makeup to signal to people that your gender is not what they might first have presumed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you yeah. can give them visual cues. Yeah. And I think I think as a gay man, I also choose to give visual cues as a way as a way of kind of simplifying that communication. But how does that yeah. how does that relate to your experience? Well I think it, it's interesting that you sort of bring up presentation in relation to gender and sexuality, because a whole lot of the time uh, people really enjoy conflating gender and sexuality, right? thinking the, the same thing. Um, and so one of my internal um, worries that is likely not even a, a truth in the real world, um, but lots of my thing is that I hate the idea that I might be perceived by others as a a queer or a flamboyant man as opposed to a non-binary person. Um, right. It sort of comes about as a result of gay men who identify as cis male but yes. homosexual kind of presenting their femininity in a fairly strong way yeah. in order to sing, signal their sexuality. Like I can see yeah, how yeah. we've stuffed it up for you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't need your sympathy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, at the same time, like we've talked before about labelling and how it's useful but also quite constricting is that always having to separate what's what and who's who and, oh, that's a man and that's not a man and uh, this is what this looks like is is unhelpful to the discussion. At the same time, my uh, point of view on this is that until the point where I address the students in my class in inclusive language using yeah. gender neutral terms for both what their sexual orientation might be as well as their gender identity mm. if until the point where I can do that consistently and sustain it young people are going to be forced into asserting labels aren't they because mm. the alternative to that is to be presumed to be something they're not and I think both of us in our own ways can understand what a discomfort that creates mm. the other thing about labels that I'm thinking about in relation to you being younger is the process of coming to a sense of clarity about your identity whether it's gender mm. or sexuality it doesn't just happen overnight and you're not necessarily <laughs> no. born with that clarity particularly no. when you've got very few models to look to so yes. how does that work for you when it comes to people asking for you to give yourself a label? Well, I think it's interesting for both gender and sexuality because before I was sort of directly questioning my gender per se, my thinking was all about sexuality and how, how can I define myself in a way that can distinguish me from other people and their experiences. And so when I was sort of trying to understand my own sexuality, I I actually ended up interning some of internalizing the way that people conflate gender and sexuality and getting really confused about that because feeling like, oh well I don't I don't I don't think I necessarily present as like a very masculine man <laughs> so therefore I can't be straight which oh, is not right because I initially used the label bisexual to determine my identity put a word to whatever that is. And then sort of realised, no, there's, there's more to the story here. So I now use the label non-binary because it is sort of the most commonly understood word among people when it, talking about someone who isn't a man or a woman. 
so I, I use that term, but I also think it's problematic in terms of it defines you by what you're not. You're not binary. And so mm. I do quite like the word queer and gender queer. So with that concept of queerness being all-encompassing, do you think that mm. one day once we get to the kind of point that maybe you and I would like to see occur where your gender and sexuality aren't so much of a serious matter to have to make a decision about at the early age of your mm. life that that even that that all people would be considered to be queer somewhere on a number of different spectrums yeah. and all to be discovered and possibly even changed throughout your life yeah well i think lots of the problems I, that i find at school as well with other i'll use the word rainbow identified students is that they have a real you might call it like internalised homophobia or internalised queerphobia of not wanting to be like the other gays. But I've known some people who have said, like, I, I'm not a feminine guy, but I, I have an attraction to other guys, um, but I'm not, like the other, I'm not like the other gays. And so having that, that separation of LGBT versus straight isn't necessarily helpful for you know, feeling integrated in society. But at the same time, it's really important to find community and find belonging in a, some shared experiences of queerness. So it is about finding the balance. And I don't think that, I think there's a, there's a need for understanding that, that we don't necessarily need to always be putting labels to everything unless it's helpful and sort of moving towards a world where we can just, just be ourselves, just be yeah. ourselves and exist and not have it be so all-encompassing all the time. I definitely echo what you're saying there in my experience in talking to young people who are perhaps at the early stages of forming an identity around their sexuality or gender. And one of the safer young men who are, are moving towards coming out as gay, they will mm. often have real trouble with the uh, sense that should they come out as homosexual, they're somehow feeling they have to surrender their maleness and, and that there's some kind of choice that has to be made there. And I think that's yeah. something that society imposes, doesn't it? The uh, idea oh, yeah. that yeah. once you identify as uh, having a sexuality that doesn't fit the heterosexual norm, that you also have to surrender a whole lot of other aspects of your identity, including yeah. your gender. I, I agree mm. about the things being quite discreet it's fascinating also how they interact with each other. Mm. So as someone who identifies as queer or genderqueer, mm. there are no words in our language to help you to define your sexuality on top of that, are there? No, no, no. Um, I'm sure someone somewhere on Tumblr or whatever has or read it, has, <laughs> yeah, has made a label. Has invented it, um, yes. Doesn't this just show us how much the language that we use is actually... Uh, establishing and reinforcing those norms. It's its incredibly mm. powerful, actually, how language does that, which is something I do a lot of work on as a teacher. Yeah. But just coming back to that thing, if we're saying that the use of labels, while it has its purpose, can be quite limiting, mm. what's it like to have a sexuality that doesn't have a label? I'd like to have more to say about this. But at the same <laughs> time, living in a small town... <laughs> I don't think that I can, like, I, I have an understanding of some of my attractions and a general idea around my sexuality, but I don't necessarily think I have the opportunity to 
fully explore that in a place where there isn't enough representation for me to see people who are similar to me and understand that. So there's a couple of things that have come up in the conversation so far that I'd like to sort of deviate into talking about. One is Mm. the experience in the school and how the school deals with a lot of the matters to do with young people and their gender and sexuality. Mm. And the other one is the kind of matter of the wider society and and the process of entering into that wider society. So maybe Mm. could we talk about the school first? And maybe the sort of questions I'm interested in asking around the school have to do with times when the schools managed to get things right and times when the schools really failed to get things right. And Mm. as much as you wish to speak from personal experience, just to sort of give us a sense of the areas that we need to put our energy and time into. The school is not terrible, <laughs> which is a good thing to note. Um, <laughs> it's funny how we, <laughs> we are grateful for small mercies, right? <laughs> yes. So what so, does not terrible well, yeah. look like? Well, I, I suppose at the start of this year, when I first came to school, presenting in a, in a non-binary way um, and sort of exploring what it might look like in a school context, I did have a good experience with my dean and another member of senior staff making sure that I knew where the gender-neutral bathrooms were and them assuring me that I could come to them if I had any issues pertaining to gender, which is great. And it felt good to be seen for that and felt like they had an understanding of how they might be able to deal with me. (laughs) And so that is positive. I think where the school falls down and something that they are trying to work on, I think, is there isn't visibility and there aren't enough conversations on queer issues. And I think that when they have tried to address them, they've sort of missed the mark on where that needs to be and they haven't quite had the right conversations with all the people they should have had before things were initiated. So a month or so ago we had people coming into school to do a pride pledge with us and... The idea was that they'd hand over a certificate and pass a pass senior leadership pride flag and that the senior management would make a pledge to work on their inclusivity and uh, be better for queer students and all of those kind of things, which is a good idea in concept. The problem was is that they didn't have conversations with, well, I know they didn't talk to you at all, Chris. Um, no about that and I, I I knew that it was happening and so I got in touch with a member of senior leadership and I said hi I heard that this is happening I'd be happy to help with any organization stuff or wrangling students to be there or whatever and I was told oh no it's all fine the whole the whole pride week that we've organized is is going to be all fine and it's all under our control so I was like oh that's great I don't have to worry about it I mean I'd like to be involved but it sounds like they've got it under control And then it was the week of, and so I emailed again just to double-check they didn't need me for anything. And, no, that's right, but you can come to a, just have a chat with me if you want to. Um, I'll fill you in on what's happening this week. And so that was good, and I figured out what was happening. But then it came to the day of this presentation, and because of COVID rules and other things, there was a limited number of people there, and it happened just to be, oh, we'll just pick pick a few classes to come along to this assembly. And so didn't contact the people that maybe should have been there. And it, it felt the whole handing over the certificate thing a little bit arbitrary as to, okay, great, you've, you've recognised that stuff needs to be done around 
making sure that we can discuss queer issues in the classroom and uh, being more inclusive to gender expansive students and sexual sexuality diverse people within school. But I, I don't really want to applaud that until I can actually see or hear the change that you're going to make. And so I think it, it seemed a little bit too symbolic as opposed to if they had talked to people who are affected by certain things, organised an assembly where they talked about what they want to try and fix and then done this certificate thing. That would have been a lot more impactful. It's interesting, again, that you're uh, relaying this particular experience because it's one that caused me to have quite a heightened reaction myself. Yeah. And I, I'll talk about that in the podcast separately. But mm. I would want to echo your point of view and perhaps pick up on the point that you're making, which I definitely share, and that is the need for conversations to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, for a lot of people, those conversations might be difficult. But mm. I, personally, I think it's essential that people get to have a say in how these things are done. And yes. otherwise, you use the word symbolic, which of course is typically generous of you. I use the word tokenistic, and that's my way of framing it. But the, mm. um, but the, the trouble that comes from my point of view, when gestures are making from a tokenistic point of view is that it, mm -hmm. you run the risk of actually undermining and further yeah. alienating the very people that you're trying to support. Yes. And I do have, a, I sort of draw a very clear distinction between good intentions and good actions. And so, mm. yeah, I think we can probably help here. But the thing about the school is that they're very lucky, even though we're a rural school, to have people like you and me who are happy mm. to identify in the gender or sexuality spectrum that we sit, who they yeah. could be talking to. So apart from that idea of conversation, do you have uh, things that you would really like to see happen in the school in relation to, you know, diverse gender and, and the spectrum of sexualities? The uniform is something interesting that does need to be changed and the school are planning on changing it, which is good. And so... Uh, through a separate committee, they had worked on the whole uniform plan and said, yes, we're going to be progressive and make this uniform gender neutral so anyone can wear whatever they like and feel included. And I thought, great, <laughs> that's all sorted. Having a gender neutral uniform will just be good because everyone's wearing the same thing and we don't have to visually segregate students. But then they came out with a few of the demo items and presented them in front of the school. And I was sort of sitting there like, hold on. How what? are these gender neutral? How? How is this gender neutral? I, I wrote a, a column on this a few, maybe two months ago, just talking about like, well, you can't, you can't just call something another name and um, expect it to be gender neutral. It's like... I it think their perception of gender neutrality is just simply that they are going to not prescribe anyone from wearing any particular item of the uniform, which essentially I maybe suits people who still identify on the two ends of the binary. Yeah. <laughs> but even yeah. that, I think that the uh, notion of, of young people having to make a choice about their mm. gender identity at the age of 11, I know some can, but I don't think it's a particularly no. realistic thing to be asking no. young and people think, to be doing. I think the other thing to stress that's really important in this conversation and something I wrote about is that um, this isn't something that just affects young queer kids. It's for everyone. Se separating boys and girls into two groups 
isn't helpful in creating a society where we, where we supposedly want equality or equity. So, yeah, it's important to stress that gender neutrality is, in terms of uniform, is everyone, let's just wear the same thing. It'll be the same uniform for everyone, much less complicated. And then it's a uniform, not a biform or a multiform. I, th- I feel like simple. we just missed this wonderful opportunity to design something that was suited to the needs of all the students in terms of the practical purposes of a uniform yeah. and at the yeah. same time redefines uh, what uh, the style you'd expect a uniform and it would be Absolutely. such a great way to sell a school, wouldn't it, if it had a uniform <laughs> that was that was actually fully addressing this. I, I also wanted to ask, did anybody talk to you about the uniform as part of the, I think it's been a three and a half year process of making decisions about the new one? Uh, no, no, I, I, aside from the the general um, surveys sent out to everyone, I haven't had any people sur- approach me. The survey I got just said, do you want to change the uniform? Yes yeah. or no. <laughs> that, yes. Was the, that was the survey. How very binary. <laughs> I understand that they've just decided to make it that the year 12 and 13 students must wear the uniform as well as part of this change. So it would have affected you if you were slightly younger in the school. I helped to organise a um, sexuality and gender acceptance group for our younger students. And there are lots of young non-binary and trans kids in that group. And so in making that change, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, this is going to be so good for them. They don't have to worry about having to wear a uniform that isn't congruent with their identity. But then seeing that uniform, I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. I mean, sure, they, they can they can mix, mix match and have a, have a play with the uniform, but wouldn't it just be so much easier for everyone if it was all just the same? We can call it a day. Well, it's it's also interesting because I think from a gender point of view, it's typically more comfortable or more socially accepted for women to choose to wear clothing that might be more typically identified as being for men than it is for Mm. men to wear clothing that would more typically be identified as being for women. And so the fact that they've kind of gone with this boy and girl uniform also, it creates an uneven situation for kids who are exploring the range of possible gender identities they want to present. Perhaps I'd, we can get into these conversations and I think I can almost hear some listeners thinking, what's the big deal? It's just a uniform. Put it on, yeah. wear it. Yeah. Nobody actually likes their school uniform. You know what I mean? Like those kind of standard yeah, responses. Yeah, yeah. What What is the problem with having to be forced into a uniform that sends signals to the society around you that you are something that you don't feel you are? I'll start with my perspective from my experience is if I had to, if I was forced to continue wearing a uniform that's currently prescribed by the school, whether that's the boys or the girls, I know that I wouldn't feel comfortable because it's, what it does is it, it, it visibly separates you into groups and it doesn't fit with how my identity is, um, how I understand my identity. And to challenge that, what if people said to you your individual identity isn't important at school because you're there to learn? Learning is about, I suppose, learning about the conquest of Mexico is important, but it's also learning about yourself and how you learn. 
and your identity is such an intrinsic part of that. So if you're not allowed to express who you are at school authentically, then are you going to authentically learn would be my question. I also have a view as a teacher that says that the first job in the classroom is to create an environment where people feel safe. And I'm not entirely sure anyone feels safe when they feel like they can't reveal their true identity, you know, like that's kind of fundamentally an unsafe environment Mm. from my point of view. I think one of the reasons that I'm asking these more challenging questions, because I feel that in a rural town like ours, where there is quite a lot of homogeneity in the society around us, people haven't got enough breadth of experience to understand what it might be like for someone who doesn't fit the mold that everybody else is comfortable in. And mm. so that for them, the issue of whether, you know, school uniform is just whether it's itchy or not, or whether the, the color suits their, you know, the shades they like to wear, <laughs> those are genuinely superficial concerns. And I think they classify this in that category because that's what they mm. know. Yeah. And that comes into a lot of other things outside of uh, just this issue is that if I make a, a big fuss about, you know, people using my correct pronouns or respecting my identity by using um, gender inclusive words, people, I have had people say, well, yeah, just, just give everyone a break. Like we, we get it, but it, it's just like they then pronouns are hard and we're doing our best, but like just, just lay off for a minute. And so people do consider it a vain thing. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because of uh, I can speak from experience, knowing you for a few years now, that mm. of, of all the people I know, you are one of the people who is least likely to impose expectations on others that are unwelcome. All you're asking for here is to be is to be uh, treated with dignity and respect in terms of who you are. I think, I mean, I sometimes try some thought experiments with students when we talk about this in the classroom and and in order to try and examine how it might feel. One of the things that I sometimes say, and I'd be really interested in your view on whether this is an appropriate thing to do, but I sometimes say Mm. to them, imagine if you're in a classroom where first you were asked to wear a school uniform that signified the agenda you're not and then where you were always addressed using pronouns of that gender would that lead you to feel as if you were respected and comfortable in the classroom and and so I experiment with doing it and and just you know sometimes we have had a situation which was quite fun where they swapped uniforms with one of the female students and and I referred to them as she and you know just to just to actually experience it and the great thing about you know this is the thing that you mentioned earlier about our school is that I think people are open to exploring this not so close yeah. to it they're not yeah. morally opposed to it but they're just no. just they just don't have any basis of experience for it do they no. no and not not understanding of how they can approach um those conversations and i do i do really like that that device as a, as a, a teaching point for for people who haven't had these conversations is if someone i've i've had some times where a teacher said to me hello sir and, you know, I can work past the initial ridiculousness of, you know, looking <laughs> at myself and going, oh, hello, yes, I am a sir. Look at me. Look yeah. at me being a sir. Um, and yeah. then addressing, say, a male teacher is, yes, good afternoon, madam. Um, and just challenging that um, preconception. Yes. I, I I think one of the things that I've been talking about with not just with you but 
or in my, my endless internal monologue, but also with um, students who are Māori in the school is mm. the point that, that where you draw the line in terms of expectations of others making an effort. And as I get older, possibly this is actually not a age thing. Possibly I've always been like this, but there's an extent to which I think it probably is other people's obligation to, for example, get pronouns right. And that in the same way as it's our obligation to pronounce Māori words correctly and have enough mm. of te reo in our vocabulary to be able to use yeah. it fluently in the classroom, at least in conventional ways. And, and, and mm. if that's not done, that, that we can accept that we have failed, as opposed to always yeah. asking the person who's being accommodated or recognised by those things to be patient or tolerant. <laughs> like, I don't know if, why it is that the mainstream are always the ones who have to receive all the tolerance, if that makes sense. Yeah. How much, do you, how much do you insist? How much do you create discomfort for anyone who might make that mistake? Well, I, it's, it is a, something that I struggle with, with, you know, pronoun use and that kind of thing because when it comes to not wanting to feel like I'm taking up space or those kind mm. of things, say if it's in a minor conversation and someone misgenders me, uses the wrong pronoun, and then the conversation moves on but it's still lingering in my brain, not wanting to bring it up after the fact because it, it looks like, I don't know, attention-seeking. And I know that in my brain I can, I can go, oh, no, 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 no. If I value staying true to myself and all those kind of things, it is worth the risk of pausing the conversation to go, sorry, correction. But at the same time, the better option is, well, first of all, make an effort with uh, pronoun use and those kind of things, but also... For other people who are aware or who recognize it to just go in the moment, uh, it's they and moving on. And then, mm. sorry, cool, moving on. And that's how it can be a lot as confrontational, particularly for um, people who use their then pronouns. It reminds um, me a little bit of the second wave feminism statement, the personal is political, where yes. I feel like I've experienced that with sexuality in the late 20th century. I think that you're now experiencing this in relation to gender in the 21st yeah. century. And that's where mm -hmm. our lives are not entirely ours because we're also operating on a campaigning level <laughs> in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And I've become comfortable with that. I'm, I mean, here I am yeah. producing my own podcast in order to express my point of view. So obviously it's fine by me, but how is that for you? Like how much do you, how much are you willing to sort of sacrifice essentially your own personal comfort and social congruence in order to further the cause as it were? It is tricky because initially I used to do a lot of worrying about, I don't want to exist as a, as a political entity. I don't want to, just be seen as that. I just want to exist as myself and move on and have other people deal with whatever they have to deal with to understand that. But now that I have sort of had more experiences where I understand that the act of even getting dressed in the, in the morning is a political exercise yeah. um, for me. And even when it comes down to that, because gender is a social construct and it's a, a performative activity for everyone is that no matter what I do my gender can be revoked my gender can be cancelled by any cis person or any person at any time of the day if they misgender me because it's a social construct and if they socially misgender me then 
in that context, they've cancelled my gender. And that is how it feels. I'm interested in the family dimension of this as well. In the process of identifying as having a a non-binary gender or identifying as queer, Mm. was it like it was for me as a gay in the 80s where I felt quite alienated also from my family because they didn't identify as that sexuality in my case? Or in your case, Mm. I'm actually making the presumption that your family are cisgendered, but I don't even know. I I do think there's there's an aspect of that um, when we talk about things like coming out, which isn't a word that I have problems with, but it's the (laughs) most commonly accepted uh, thing for that, is my family's been really, really great in supporting me um, and understanding, and particularly mum has, even before I was sort of, directly questioning oh right so maybe I'm non-binary um but when I was like seven and expressing a gender that a gender role that wasn't entirely expected of a young boy (laughs) I do remember her asking me well do you think do you think you might not be a boy and you know, when you're seven, all you want to do is like stuff sandwiches in a CD player and move on with your day. Um, <laughs> so right. I didn't didn't have enough vocabulary to understand that, but I did say, "Oh no, I think I'm just a tom girl," which was the first language that I could sort of put to my experience mm. um, in a binary context. So there's two sides to that, isn't there? One mm. is the question's great because it allows for the possibility. But at the same time, expecting an answer requires a young person to start defining themselves at a point when defining themselves is not really (laughs) viable. And I wonder if we could do better by just constantly providing a variety of different representations of children. We use different pronouns, just kind of spread things around a little bit and and not not ask the child to admit if I if I'm using my own language for my own heritage to anything. But uh, but yeah. at the same time, allowing them to sort of exist when the variety within a variety of different identities. Yeah, I think for kids just to be able to be kids, and if they do come to a parent or a caregiver and express something about their identity, then I think it's the responsibility of the parent to go with that. But I also think that it's not necessarily the responsibility of parents, particularly of young children, to question their kids all the time and just sort of go with the flow and mm. if a if a kid wants to wear a dress one day and then go and um I don't know roll in the mud the next day yeah. and play with dump trucks it's like whatever and we can yeah um not worry too much about it constant labeling something I would often encourage parents to do is to voice in more abstract ways they're mm-hmm. accepting values. So yeah. while they don't necessarily have to apply any of this to their own children, I know it would have made a mile of difference in my life if my parents hadn't expressed a whole lot of homophobic views yeah. in my childhood because obviously mm-hmm. I was listening to everything they were saying and that, for me, kind of confirmed that they were hostile territory. And yeah. um, I think yeah. it simply just like like even when it's just like watching a television program that might have people of various gender identities or sexualities and just kind of being affirming towards those characters like I think in quite deliberate ways 
in order to communicate that message to your children without them having to um, ask you or you having to have the conversation. Just that kind of in your own conduct. And the other Mm. thing is that, of course, if you happen to have friends who happen to be of other than mainstream genders or sexualities, then make sure that that's something that is really embraced in the family. I think that can be quite useful because it sends the Mm. message that these things are acceptable, which is something that I think we both need to see sent out more often. There's some sort of uh, universe-like references to this at the moment. I noticed that the um, latest sort of 7,000 square kilometres of Californian forest that just burnt down was sparked by a gender reveal party. Yes, the, the, yeah. I think there's an inherent message in that. I don't think it would be a good idea to start determining a child's gender at birth. Maybe just give them a little bit of time to find out who they are first. Don't have a gender reveal party. You don't want a forest fire. Do you have advice for students who might be experiencing or asking themselves some of the questions that may lead to them discovering that they don't match the gender that they've been assigned or that their mm. sexuality isn't as defined as they had maybe it had been suggested to them that it was. What Do you have any yeah. ideas about ways for them to work through that? Well, what worked for me in experimenting with my social gender role um, and my understanding of myself is taking things in little baby steps and it can be exciting and it can be scary, it can be terrifying, it can be affirming, and it's a really exciting journey that's ongoing. But I think my biggest takeaway from um, where I'm at so far is just sort of it's it's about working your confidence up to a place where you can be okay enough with yourself to show that with the world and whether that's playing with clothes in private and just seeing what you like and I've heard of some people who've played online games and tried experimenting with their voice to see if if they mm. can get get people to recognize them in a different way games of avatars perhaps yes yes and so lots of ways to do that but it, it's it's just a it's 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 also about having fun with that and sometimes not taking yourself too seriously and sometimes I'll I'll, I'll think about myself and say this is absolutely insane like like I'm I'm experiencing something based on gender like what what is that about <laughs> sometimes it's it's I, I I think it's helpful to look at it from a positive side and when things like misgendering happen out in public and like I said before like looking at myself and going okay so you know this presentation I'm not sure how entirely fitting it is with the social role that you've constructed of man or sir and so just finding finding the little moments where you can appreciate it for what it is is a little bit little bit ridiculous and also very important. Is there an agency or a person in your life who you've had access to that's been helpful to you? I, I am lucky to have really supportive um, parents, which is really, really cool. Um, and they've been really good at trying really hard with pronouns and asking me... Um, questions around how to talk to other people about me and all those kind of things and having people like you at school to talk to and people in the sexuality and gender acceptance group I am lucky to have connections with people um, especially people who have a similar or similar experiences 
to me, like we, we, you and I can both talk about, you know, queerness and what that means to us. And it's really affirming to be able to talk to, to people who either are eager to understand and learn more or already understand and want to continue developing their understanding with you. Hmm. Having um, recently won an award for a, a performance of Shakespeare that you were part of, I understand mm. that you've just been to a workshop for a week in yeah. the Big Smoke, uh, Big where, smoke where there were yeah. others who were identifying as genderqueer. Mm. Spending time with them, what was it like? This reminded me of like often how isolating it can be in a rural town in, in that group. It was really, really, really cool to be able to talk to, like, we had a, a big group of, and it didn't really matter too much. We all sort of were all friends, regardless of sexuality or gender identity. But there's a significant amount of people in that group who were queer identified in terms of sexuality and gender. And I was in a room with two other um, non-binary people, which was like, whoa, holy moly, I'm not the only one in the world. Other people mm. um, of my age who do acting and do performance. Um, yes, Shakespeare's yeah. uh, quite a useful character in that respect, isn't he? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then you had to come back here again. You're you're a week back to, in a little rural alpine yes. town. What's that like? Aren't, aren't the mountains lovely? <laughs> <laughs> Look at the view. You are not the first person to have a tone of irony about the beauty of our mountains. I have to agree. Mm, yeah, I, I mean, we're going back to school next week. We're still on the holiday break. So um, it'll be interesting to sort of rethink things about school once I've been experiencing them after I've been to that workshop for a week. I think we'd mm. all be really interested to hear how school does look to you after having experience of something that where you're around people who are like you. I think one of the mm. things that can be challenging in a rural town when you are in a minority in that town is that not every aspect of you is that minority and no. there are parts of you that are of this town and that's yeah. something that you have in common with the others here and mm. you can only have that in common with the others here so you end up I find in a bit of a with a sort of a split identity where there are things where yeah. you have strong congruence but also things that set you aside is that mm. something that you that you can recognize yeah and also being um grouped into just being seen as that minority group yeah, and only existing as I don't know that represent the representative of that group, or as that's that's my only social role, and that's how I find a lot of people approach me is that the only thing they really want to talk to me about is gender. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm happy to talk about gender. I, I like conversations around gender, but you know, I, I might want to talk about sewing or Shakespeare or, yes. or jazz. <laughs> Yes. Reminds me actually of a, a few years ago, um, as an experiment, a friend of mine sent a letter to me here in, at home where he wrote, Chris, the teacher, Wanaka, New Zealand, and it got to me. And um, I think he could just as easily have written, Chris, the gay, Wanaka, New Zealand, and it would have got to me. If that makes sense. Like when you're in a small town, you do you do tend to um, have to live according to those really obvious external aspects of your identity, don't you? Mm -hmm. and, and adhere to the expectations around them as well sometimes. Yes, 
And that's the sort of thing that I think we we do have to face and that is quite distancing for us in a small town. And that is that mm. people not only have to work through their own sense of what it means to relate to people who are gay or gender mm. non-binary or queer, but also they have to relate to the, they have to work through the knowledge that they're also going to be known to be relating to us and how that might affect yes. their own identity. And, and yeah. for some people, that in, that in itself can be a significant challenge. I wonder, yeah. actually, potentially, if that's what's behind them doing an entire Pride Pledge pageant without mm. talking to us. <laughs> it could actually yeah. be that talking to us is quite scary for them. Knowing how to approach us or approach conversations with us. And yes. What, I, what do I do? In my quite vehement response to that whole scenario, I sort of said to them that they've made a statement which I totally support, which is we want to be an inclusive environment for gays, lesbians, mm. bisexual, transgender, intersex, etc. But I said, you've actually got to understand that when you make a statement like that, I'm the gay you've got. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can't you can't be doing this in abstract about the theoretical gays that you're trying to yeah. support. You have to actually yeah. be willing to support the ones, however difficult yes. it is, that you've got sitting in front of you. And yeah. um, I mm-hmm. think that's something that possibly is not something they thought through. No, no. You're right. That idea of the theor- the theoretical gaze that exists somewhere. Yeah. We're gonna help them out the theoretical gaze. Yeah, I think the thing I made it clear, and this is to do with being unapologetic, is that Mm. I'm a gay who has baggage, and a lot of my baggage is attached to school. And so Mm. making the school a safe and inclusive environment for me is actually a big job. And the reality is that's actually what it's like when you you care to engage with a community of people who are have suffered or are prejudiced against is that you actually Mm. realize that you're dealing with people who are often quite vulnerable and who need special attention. And when you start claiming that that's what you wish to do, unfortunately, you have to take on that responsibility, which, you know, is something that I'm curious to see how well they're going to do over time. I guess on that note, I'd like to ask you if there's something that is pressing for you at the moment, a change that you would like to see in your immediate environment that would mean a lot to you. Is there anything that's sitting on your agenda? I'm saying your agenda because I consider us both to be people who are sort of changing the world. (laughs) I'm non-binary. I don't have an agenda. (laughs) (laughs) What is is agenda? (laughs) Oh, well, that's an excellent, that's an excellent answer to the question. And uh, I do think it's, you know, when you look at our agendas, like you always always carry about 16 bags around the school each day. You you have a lot on your agenda as it is, but I'm I'm sure you put, you know, at 3.30pm, change the world. Yeah, it's, um, I think it, it, I I couldn't really put a a specific one thing that will change the world for me. it's about gradual cultural change and about uh, implementing certain things that are going to help to shape that for the school culture. Yeah, so you're you're, happy, you're you're patient with the process, and I'm I'm thrilled to hear that. I certainly know that one of the things I'll be doing is increasing the amount of representation in the curriculum for yeah. um, the, the 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 diversity oh. we're discussing. And I guess the other thing that I'd say, and I'm just going to impose this on you, the most uncomfortable thing for a teacher to say to a student, but um, I think something that will change your experience is that when you start to get the opportunity to to have intimate relationships with people, and at mm-hmm. the moment, because of the size of the town as much as anything, that's 
fairly that the opportunities for that must be fairly limited. Yeah, yeah, it's um, especially like when I'm um, before I was talking about you know the the internalized queer phobia, <clears throat> um, and also people not knowing how to approach me. So even if there are people who may be able to feel attraction to me within the student body, or whatever, um, either them not wanting to be associated with me because of some kind of fear that it will have an impact on them as a person or make them look a certain way or um, just not knowing how to approach a thing with me. Like if I'm attracted to them, does that, does that make me gay or does yeah. that make me straight or am I, am I suddenly pansexual? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, dear. It just actually makes them wonderful, doesn't it? Congratulations. You're attracted to a non-binary person. That's right. It yes. means it, it, I, would, I would have to say maybe this is my age speaking, but if that a person who in our community could own their attraction for someone who is gender non-binary would just suggest that they're a more highly evolved individual and I'd salute them for it because it's in reality I think a lot of people do find themselves limited by those just those factors that you were just describing mm. and limited by the binary of um gay or straight yeah gay or yeah. straight gay or straight and that's yeah um you've also been finding that that you've been encountering some challenges in relation to that binary when you've been talking to medical professionals I understand yeah, yeah, because I sort of just in the whole medical sphere, it's difficult to talk about any kind of treatment for me. It will be difficult for me if they're not going to approach it um, in a way that makes me or preserves my dignity or just shows any respect towards me. And so I've I've been told by one medical professional that it's harder for me to access medical treatment for anything, things related to gender in particular, um, because I'm not trans enough or I'm not fully trans. There's, a, I mean, this is the whole outside of that school environment and the medical, medical world is a massive, massive conversation. But I think especially down here, that kind of understanding is really, really limited and it's not helpful when you know, the only the only person who's designated to deal with young trans people is telling people they're not trans enough. It means that you have to end up going in with quite a lot of clarity in your own right, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. And is... um, understanding in myself that, well, I, I could go into a doctor's office and say, hello, I'm a trans woman or hello, I'm, I don't know, a trans man or say anything to change that that initial perception or that initial confusion around uh, what's what's non-binary. I, I could do that, but I'm, I don't want to because I want to know that if I'm accessing some, a service or accessing someone from something from anyone, whether that's school or home or at work or with doctors, is that I want to do it in a way that is true to myself and authentic. Yeah, and you're obviously dealing with an area that's deeply sensitive and mm. where they have a lot of power I can understand that's challenging yeah. Yeah. I had I, I had uh, my own versions of those challenges over the years with doctors I remember one time in Wanaka going to a doctor and um, identifying my sexuality and being asked questions like you know how many gays are there in Wanaka and things like that which I guess I should be qualified to answer but it just yeah. felt it just felt like a, as if I was 
somehow yeah. having to be the expert about something that they should yes. know more about than me. The leader of all the Wanaka gays. It's yeah. just one. <laughs> Pretty confident that the other gays in Wanaka would not want to associate themselves with me on a regular basis. Supreme leader of war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ollie, is there mm. anything else you'd like to add to this conversation before we wrap it up? No, I think, I think um, as we've recognised, conversations are crucial mm. and dialogues between any groups of people around gender and sexuality, whether that's at home or at a school environment or wherever, are really important to help um, influence cultural change. So I think to all the listeners out there, I would implore you to have, try and just try and engage in conversations around gender and sexuality with people in your life, trying to uh, free your mind and <laughs> expanding your perception on what's possible in that domain. In addition to that, I think I'd probably like to add that it's our own personal job when we're interacting with others in our communities to do the work on abandoning some of those unhelpful preconceived ideas we have about gender yeah. and sexuality. It makes yeah such a difference to others if we're willing to do that this was an episode of see me after class with renee and chris my twitter handle is at edutronic underscore net and mine is at renee plunkett too see you next week